Welcome to Life of the School, episode 59. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. In this episode, I'm sitting down with Tammy Fay. Tammy is the department leader and a biology teacher at Masconomet Regional High School in Boxford, Massachusetts. Tammy has developed four elective courses in biotechnology, bioethics, and two interdisciplinary courses, including Prometheus Unleashed and Mission Mars. Tammy has also been involved in implementing the Amgen Biotech Experience in her school district. More recently, she has been part of the team of teachers developing lab exchange pathways for virtual lab experiences, as well as assisting in teaching videos to explain a variety of concepts in molecular biology. Tammy holds a BS in biotechnology from Rochester Institute of Technology, an MAT in education from Boston University, and an MED from Salem State. Welcome, Tammy. Thank you, Aaron. Nice to see you in person. I feel like it's been, what, like three weeks? That's it. That's all. <laughs> it's only been about three weeks, uh, which has been sort of a summary of my fall. I feel like I have been like deep in professional communities this fall. Like I've seen people left and right. So it's been great. That's awesome. So yeah, I was actually, before we got this on, on this call, I was trying to think, I was like, how long have I known Tammy? And I was like, I think forever. Like I was ever, <laughs> you know, you are, I think probably as ubiquitous as me showing up to PD stuff and, and all sorts of things in there. Um, I remember sitting down at, at the Amgen thing this summer and we were sitting at the same table and we're like, yeah, we, we know each other. I don't know that we've done anything together recently, but we had done BioBuilder many years ago. And um, I know you've been at some MABT things I've been at and other conferences, but yeah, we seem to bump into each other every few years, whether intended or not, at uh, the various PD things. So I'm glad to have you on. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, how is, uh, I don't know that I've actually checked in. I know that you, we talked, to, I heard a little bit about, you know, your leadership piece, but um, how are things going in the classroom so far this fall? Ooh, I think it's been a crazy fall. I mean, at Masco, we've been talking about the feeling that Everything seems much busier than average, but there's no, we don't have anything we can account that to. We have no idea. Um, the classroom, uh, I have great kids. You know, as an educator, you can't choose the grouping of students, right? And when mm -hmm. you get those groupings that just seem a little bit special, mm -hmm. um, it just makes those classes that much more engaging and enriching for you as an educator, not just the students. So, I love my groups this year, and I'm the science team coach, which I should have mentioned to you earlier, <laughs> and I have just this, we have such a strong group of freshmen that are interested in STEM that it's actually, I, I know I get paid to do it, but it just <laughs> seems like we're just hanging out and we all love the same things, and these are young students that are, are just as nerdy as I am and have <laughs> knowledge about things that are far beyond the classroom. Um, that we talk books, we talk science. And uh, so I feel like with my students, I'm having just a great year as far as that goes. That's great to hear. Yeah. Usually when you talk about the science team, uh, it usually involves you swearing about my um, my work husband, Brian, and his exactly <laughs> and his Acton Box Bro team that like cleans up in the state every year. I mean, uh, we did remove ourselves from the Olympiad, so we don't have to hear the clinking of the medals anymore. But <laughs> we still, uh, in our North Shore Science League, we, we are competitive and it's... Uh, just a fun group of teachers and students that are participating. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I joke about the science team and how the science team is a uh, f- f- at least five days a week thing in Acton. Like uh-huh. you can't, you cannot walk into what is my AP biology room in the class in the morning, and then Brian's AP room in the afternoon, and that's also science team home. And man, they just they are <laughs> in there every single day after school, and like dozens of them, like every right. single day. And he's like, "No, our meetings are on Wednesday." And I was like, "Brian, your meetings are on every day." Like, right. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, I. Uh, I echo that. I have really, I have really nice kids as well this year. But um, I feel like as I age and mellow, um, the kids seem getting keep getting better. And mm. I also know that that's probably not that the kids are getting better. It says <laughs> that I'm, I'm getting, uh, I'm, I'm mellowing a little bit. And uh, yeah, I'm, it's harder to annoy me. I think it's genuinely harder to annoy me in the classroom. Uh, that's yeah. an interesting observation. I actually would agree with that. Um, and because I've always been fairly, I'm passionate and I'm feisty and. Um, there's, I'll hold that temper, but the, sometimes it would go, I am, I feel I watch people and I go, why are they upset about that? Like, yeah. that's a little thing. And, um, so I would agree with you. It takes a lot more than it used to even five years ago. Um, yeah. but I think I like the spot better, right? Yeah. I'm okay. <laughs> Dude, yeah. I'll take it. Yeah. The job doesn't get easier. So if the, if dealing yeah. with the kids does, then, uh, that's the good part. So, right. All right. Well, so now it gets great because I, I now have a little bit of background on you because I, you know, Internet stalked you before we started. But <laughs> um, but um, I do not know the answer to this question. So um, this is the first question I ask everybody. How did you become a science teacher? What what did you do before being a teacher? What, what led you into the classroom? Ah, great question. Uh, you know, it's that sort of example of trying to find your way. Um, I knew I loved biology. So when I earned my undergraduate degree in biotech, which was fairly unique in the early 90s, um, mm-hmm. I needed to make money, right? So I said, I'm going to either the West Coast or the East Coast, and I'm going to go work for a company. And I never understood it, the sort of value of having gone to a technical college until that moment, which was the lab skills were one of the things we really developed. And I had done internships at, while I was working at, you know, at school. And so I said, all right, I'm going to interview. And I, I ended up taking a job here at the Deaconess Hospital in, in Boston, in Cambridge, or in Boston, actually. And it was working on HIV research, which mm. was really scary. I was 22 years old and um, I was an animal modeler. So in my internship work in college, I had lots of experience working with mice um, and had learned lots of techniques for handling or drug delivery systems and things like that. So I was somebody that had skills that not everybody wanted necessarily mm-hmm. and got me placed. Um, the job was... Um, working with mice that had skids, so severe combined immunodeficiency. So really interesting science work, trying to understand the pathophysiology and the path of the HIV virus in mice that have no immune systems. Clearly, the science loved it, loved every second of it. Academia doesn't pay so well. Mm -hmm. So um, being a first-generation college student in my family and college graduate, uh, I had a lot of debt. So I said, I can't do this. I have to, I'm going to have to go find a job in private industry. I don't have a choice. And so I made the switch into private industry and worked on, um, at a company, company that no longer exists, but called Immunologic Pharmaceutical Corporation that worked on trying to target the immune system. And my particular work was related to um, cocaine, a cocaine addiction model. So it continued with my rodent work, trying mm-hmm. to stimulate the immune system to create antibodies to help prevent people from, um, you know, say they're having a weak moment and they decide to reuse a drug that they've become friends with, um, that the 
antibodies that are produced through the vaccination process would actually help block it from huh. crossing the blood-brain barrier. So for me, what was really cool, I mean, I was young, um, was getting a publication, you know, mm-hmm. um, that was big to walk away with that. But in that time period that I was working for the company, there were lots of things I loved and lots of things I learned. I became a better scientist. I I loved sort of as startup companies, there were a lot of young, energetic people. Um, there were a lot of people really throwing out big ideas. Um, but there were things that I, I had to look at myself and say, what am I going to do 10 years from now, 15 years from now? And I couldn't see myself breaking. I wasn't going to be a research assistant forever. That's one thing I knew, even though I love bench work. I actually love bench work. What I saw from the PhD people that I was working with was that they were away from the bench and they were reading the papers, right? And they're going to the meetings, they're getting money, they're doing those sorts of things. And at 25, I couldn't see that. I couldn't see myself sitting in an office reading papers um, because I actually like the hands-on, but I also couldn't see myself making the living I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I always to tell, I always tell parents during open house that, you know, one of the things I always want my kids to do is like getting up and going to work every day because there's no place you spend more time than the job that you've committed yourself <laughs> to. Yeah. And yeah. I found, you know, in five years, um, I didn't like going to work. I still love science. But it was like you roll out of bed at 825 so you can get down the street to your office at 830, start your lab experiments. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not in this. Like, I'm not invested in this the long haul. And I, so I took a year to still continuing to work and said, well, what can I do? Um, education was never, ever, ever something that I had on my radar as an option until that time period. And um, I knew that at the point I was at, I needed to just make a decision and it couldn't, it really had to be all or none, but I made a self promise, which was once I go do this, once I hit the classroom, if it doesn't work, I'm out because not for me, mm-hmm. because I can go get another job. It was about the kids. Yeah. There was no way I, I did never looked at education as a summer summers off. Um, <laughs> and as you know, we, we mentioned <laughs> seeing each other, we're doing things all year round and even after school on weekdays. So I, I quit my job and um, with a lot of support and I went to school full-time for one year at BU. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a great mentor um, and I'll name drop her, but Pam Pelletier um, just retired out of Boston public schools, but she helped me understand sort of what skill base I had that I could bring to a classroom that um, would make a difference. And I did a one-year program. I had dual cert in middle school and high school. I was like, okay, now what do I do? I'm more marketable. Um, put my name out there. Um, you know, I think there is an advantage being a science teacher when you're interviewing. Mm-hmm. I think that there's fewer options sometimes or more options for us to get a job um, with the interviews that are out there. And lo and behold, I got this interview at a place that I couldn't pronounce. <laughs> and lots of people mispronounce it, but um, one of the interviews was at Masconomic on the North shore. And I grew up in Vermont. I, I had no idea. Masco doesn't stand for a place. It just stands, you know, it's an old Indian name associated with, you know, uh, you know, the history of the area. I didn't know about Boxford or Topsfield or Middleton. So <laughs> I show up there and I can say that, and I still look at it now when I'm in the interview process with other people, one of the things for me that was so, such a strong selling point, even though there were other schools out there that were interested was the community investment in the interview. There must have been, I don't know, 13 people 
but there were, you know, it was summertime, there was faculty, there were students, there were parents, there were, it just was this group that really wanted to find what they felt was the best match for the population there. Um, so I, you know, I waited for this job, even though I had other jobs because it just felt right. And, mm. but I also knew that I wanted to go home and home will always be Vermont. And so I always had this sort of, I'm going to stay like three years. Cause you'd hear those things. You can't stay to school too long. If you're too long, then you cost too much. And I, I haven't left. It's 20, this is my 21st year. And it's clear that I'm now long haul, um, mm-hmm. in one district, which is probably, uh, has its benefits, but it also has drawbacks, which is why I enjoy the network I create, you know, I've developed with educators from all over the state, um, because it gives me insight to other places that I don't get. So I think that was a really long answer to your question. <laughs> I apologize, but no. I went I went from research to teaching, um, and I get myself back to research whenever I can because I think it helps my teaching, yeah. and it really gives students an insight into um, it's not just content. Uh, science is a process, and um, keeping myself sharp on that and giving myself opportunities um, totally helps the kids. Oh yeah, I I love getting to the bench. I mean, um, you know, I only had the one year really my senior year where I got immersed in research, but I was like, oh, that's when I learned to become a scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as, you know, you take great classes and you have great professors and stuff like that and you learned all this information, but you learn to be a scientist by being at the bench, at least, you know, now you do. Maybe a hundred years ago, it was out in the field and collecting things <laughs> and that sort of stuff. And I, I know there are still field biologists who collect out in the field, but, um, you know, for me, who has a little bit more of a biochemistry background, yours is definitely have more, uh, you know, cell model, immune, immunological model. I, you know, as you're describing your experience, it brought flashbacks to my wife working at Tufts uh, mm. right, right out of college before she moved to biotech. Um, and, you know, I think about the, the work, you become a scientist at the bench. And then so much of what we do in the classroom um, is if all you know is the content, it's hard to make those bridges for students. Um, it's hard to teach them those lab skills and, and that sort of stuff. Even when you're doing something that's not even that like lab technical, um, the the habits of mind that you develop at the bench are just so important. And, uh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's a it's a great story. And again, more than more than I knew that I'm no not too long at all. And it was very fascinating pathway and and reminded me a lot of things. And you've got so many there's so many stories I've heard from people who've done various things. And yours is unique in two respects in the sense that, yes, you had that background in there. And then from when you like made the switch, you got sort of that match for mm-hmm. you to go to the the right fit school. Um that sort of worked out and it's, you know, from our conversations, um, over the summer and that sort of stuff, you know, as you've grown as a professional, um, it's been a district that's been there with you to grow professionally. You did not, you are not the same educator you were when you started. Um, but your the demands of you in your job are also not the same. So you've had that ability. So that's pretty special. Thank you. That's true. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. So um, speaking of sort of growing professionally, well, you said something this summer that totally piqued my interest when you like just have, I don't know, it was over breakfast one day. You're like, oh, yeah, I work on this interdisciplinary course, you know, Prometheus Unleashed. And in fact, I didn't even put in the Mission Mars, so you can dive that one in here. But um, to me, this is sort of a 
uh, I don't know. These are like unicorns. Like I, I hear they exist, um, <laughs> but I don't believe that anybody actually teaches interdisciplinary courses uh, out there in the world. Although I was at NST uh, at NABT rather, and somebody was telling me about they teach big history, which is Ooh. another well-established uh, course that I've heard. But what led to you, uh, you know, getting involved in developing interdisciplinary courses at your school? You know, how long ago did this happen, and sort of what was the process involved? It's funny. I don't. It's earlier you mentioned this sort of how long have we known each other, and I, I couldn't place a time on it, and I thought about it this today as well. <laughs> and then when you ask this question, I'm back to that sort of. I feel like time sort of just keeps going so quickly. I can't place this the beginning point, yeah. but um, it's now been the class has been um, taught at Masco for I think we're on ten years. Oh wow! And maybe nine, but pretty close. And it was really the brainchild of now my husband, ironically, um, he's a history teacher at Maskinama, and we would have these discussions about um, science, but through a historical lens. And we decided um, we would talk about it. And we would talk about it. And we'd be like, that would be a really cool course. I think kids, it would be really interesting for them to actually see things from an organic standpoint. Um, dive into some things that you can't really do in either of the disciplines um, whether it's a science class or a history class, there's just not time. So we would talk about it and we were like, they'll never agree to this. Well, <laughs> they'll never like, how, why would they agree to put two teachers into a classroom at the same time? And, you know, and I get the fiscal responsibilities and the concerns on that. Um, so we held out and I think we talked about it. I think our recollection is we talked about this for five years mm -hmm. and we just never had the courage. We just felt like we would just be told no. You know, and in, the, in, the, in that time period, there's negotiations, all these other things. And finally, I don't know. I think we just finally said, what do we have to lose? The only thing they can say is no. And if they say no, or we just, we're not sure about this, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's okay. Because that's the worst that can happen. <laughs> um, and so we, we, we threw it out there. And we had, um, at that time period, department chairs that were really helpful, um, that would were willing to spearhead because I've learned a lot about sort of how that process goes, which is teachers can come up with ideas, but you need to have that. You need to have somebody also there that's willing to keep pushing that or talking to people about it and helping them get to their, their sort of dreams. So they said yes at one point. We were like, really? Okay, well, we have no curriculum. Uh, <laughs> we've been talking about this. Um, and so we spent that summer prior to um, just figuring out how to approach this because history of science is huge, right? You can major it at Harvard. You, and there's ways that I, I felt we wouldn't succeed in getting the kids to really be interested, right? Mm -hmm. If I went back to, we're going to go from the beginning to the end and we're going to do this history of science. Um, we were concerned about students' engagement and we wanted this to be fully um, about their sparking their interest to learn about things. Um, it's not about grades. You know, it's, it's really, it's not about testing. It's really about trying to give them experiences around science and history in a way that to us made sense. So long story short, we decided we would go with um, curricula that was based on themes, right? So instead of doing time periods, um, between the two of us, we would, we would haggle about, hey, what about this or what about that and throw things out there. And we still haven't fully agreed on things. <laughs> um, we have units. Um, we do a semester course, which could easily be a year-long course. Um, and the semester course, uh, we can really only do probably four or five units in the semester because um, we delve in pretty deep on certain things. So, you know, we right now we're actually teaching our atom bomb unit, which is one of our favorites because... Um, 
you know, I think I should probably back up and say one thing about the development of this course is that it was really developed on the ignorance for each of us, mm -hmm. right? That history wasn't my favorite subject. Um, and it probably, I couldn't put it all together. And it, I think it's some of that's just your interest and your cognitive ability at certain time periods. Whereas my husband, um, I, <laughs> I could say this publicly on a podcast, I'm sure, because he tells everybody else, you know, science ended for him in 10th grade, right? And he had to take one class in college. So we have these great, rich sort of dialogue now where we push each other, right? Because mm -hmm. we read books and we challenge each other. Um, so we said, okay, um, we're not going to teach a course that's just about history as it relates to biology. Um, that doesn't really cover sort of the idea of Prometheus Unleashed. It would really cover whatever science is. So like I said, right now is one of our favorites. The atom bomb story, like the, going through the history of the science between the chemistry and the physics that leads up to really the E equals MC squared formula as it leads to social and paradigm shifts. Mm -hmm. Awesome, right? The kids get engaged with it. They're interested in it. There's great stories, stories that are not ever told in history classes or science classes, um, whether you're talking about Lisa Meitner or, you know, Michael Faraday and, and talking about the, the buildup to equals MC squared and how we, you know, only, you know, over the last 150 years or so, we're really putting concepts together and understanding the power and the meaning of things. So we tried to pick units. The atom bomb one is great. Um, we do a naturalism unit that we, we've started doing to try to get the kids outside more, uh, mm -hmm. incorporating drawing. We have art teachers that come in, so we now make it a triple discipline uh, experience. <laughs> and we do some actual training with art. And I think that's great to, if we're talking about STEAM and some of the other things, we've, we try to capitalize on what we have, which are great. We have a great art uh, department. Fantastic. So, and they're I think the Masco community is always willing to try something new and work with others. Um, so those are a couple of our units. And I'm not going to lie to you, the kids, we end it on Iron Chef. We do an Iron Chef competition. <laughs> our last unit is chocolate. Um, okay. So we do botany. We, you know, within that chocolate unit, there's lots of things going back to the, you know, the value of chocolate from the Olmecs and the Mayans to why it was important in Europe um, to where we are today. Um, social issues, et cetera. And then we actually have the kids do a whole Iron Chef thing. We have judges that come in and uh, we've had some incredible foods, believe it or not. And they have to do all kinds of things around it. But um, it's just, it's kept us as educators. Um, I love biology, um, but if, but I'm always looking for something else to keep me stimulated. And I don't have binders that I go to and I keep doing over and over every year because there's always something else that might be a new way that intrigues kids. And this class allows us a little bit of free play. Yeah, um, yeah. And we, I will say this though, the hardest thing I've done in education is co-teach. So in this case, you know, we walk into our rooms and we're like, I've got this, this is my lesson plan. And we work really hard um, at Masco. We were the first co-taught interdisciplinary class. So it was the one that was going to come out of the gates first. They wanted to have 40 kids in there because there were two teachers. So there was some number stuff, and we've worked on that. That doesn't matter as much anymore. They're not worried about that. Um, we grade. We each grade the same thing, and we blindly grade. So we spend extra time in some ways where you know we each read an essay. Um, we each score it, and then we talk about that score and come to an agreement on that. Mm. Um, we 
when we're up front, we are on every day, the two of us. We don't say, hey, it's your turn. Um, you've got this today and this is what we're going to do. We actually engage in front of them. And even when in disagreements to model sort of like, you know, sometimes we get into some Darwin stuff and he might push my buttons, you know, for doing something around um, evolution uh, from his history standpoint, all appropriate, but to model for the kids how to work together up front and, um, and hopefully be successful at it, but let them see us as people, um, our sense of humors, um, our strengths, and also see at times when we're, we're looking at the other going, hey, help me out on this, or can you remind me of this, and let them know it's okay that we can do that as adults and professionals. Wow. So it sounds like it's, a, I mean, you, you use like playground as the word, mm. for me, like sandbox Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) like you could you could flush out an idea that like you have the beginning of an idea and you can flush it out in this in this space and that um i'm curious about the the picking of units and how you Mm. work at that from a uh like how how much do you have to come to agreement before you say all right um, we like this thing. We want to come back to it, but in between this space and this space, why don't we try this? Like, how much of a kernel, how much of a an outline do you need in this <laughs> space, or is it fairly is because of the nature of the course being interdisciplinary, and you know, a little bit of experience goes with that, that you're willing to say, you know, we got two, three weeks. Let's see how this sort of works itself out. Um, you know, how does that interplay mm-hmm. work now that you're a few years in? That's a great question. Um, we, so we have our set, some set units, which never stay the same. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's like, we've done some speed dating stuff this year around unit. Like suddenly you're doing a new activity and go, Oh, that really looks great. Or we took some John Muir writings and actually had them visual, make them visual. Cause they were so descriptive. We had never done that before. Right. We've done readings. Right. And had them work on that. Um, as far as unit development, we have a long list <laughs> that we, we'll revisit, but this year, and we haven't decided on what we're doing. We're going to do a pop-up unit. Like there's pop-up restaurants <laughs> now and, you know, and the kids do find that stuff kind of funny. Right. Cause I'm not sure. That, I mean, we're old, right. Yeah. I'm not old, <laughs> middle age. I'm 20 plus 20 years into a career and it wasn't my first career. So, yeah. um, we, I think one of our strengths is that we're both, um, Chris is very, um, creative and also the same type of push, right? That we we both are avid readers. Um, so we're coming up with ideas. Like I really want to do one on exploration. Like I need, and I haven't figured out how to get him there yet. Um, so we haven't come to that point yet where we're, we're moving in that direction. Um, I'll make sure I follow up with you when we figure out what our pop-up unit is for decision-making. <laughs> um, we do have like one unit we did one time and we spent so much time on it, Aaron. Um, but it was risky and it was on sort of the history of sex, right? <laughs> that is, <laughs> we had 45 kids in the room that year and it was good because it also was about the birth control pill. There was a lot of science, um, leading up to today, but, um, you know, we were sort of like, I don't know. And so we always have that there. Um, and I don't know why we, we haven't come to really a strong understanding of why we just didn't do it again. Um, but part of it's kids too, right? Trying to figure out. Um, whether we want to continue this or not, and or if there was something better. Like the eugenics unit we do is really great too mm-hmm. um, because you do a lot of you know sort of stuff around evolution and then misuse and social Darwinism and and the students really get into sort of the shock value of sort of how we, even in our 
in our own country. We can go to the big examples of World War II and Nazi Germany, but back it up to the United States, which is where it all began. And mm-hmm. suddenly you go, oh, these ideas weren't just Hitler's ideas. Yeah. Um, and still prevalent today, right? Yeah. So. Well, and I, I think that for me, I mean, you we mentioned that you teach bioethics, and I used to teach a bioethics elective. And I used to find that there was a, a little bit of a natural selection that happened with the curriculum. There's, you know, mm-hmm. there is really like, you know, you said it, you have a, a half a year to teach this uh, curriculum. And as you know, you can go to Penn and major in it. Like, right. you, know, like it, you have so many resources in there, but you get to a video and then as soon as something doesn't seem to have currency, it was like gone. It was so easy to replace that if there was something that didn't, you know, I can remember I used to show the the Twilight of the Golds. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Twilight of the Golds, was, you know, based off of the play, the idea is that, you know, this this woman, they're doing prenatal testing and they have the ability to discover whether a, uh, a child is going to be gay from a percentage standpoint. And it's based off of, again, the play and they made a movie out of it. It was actually quite a good movie. I mean, I remember the, what, I had students who were like, like 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 breaking down upset about that early on like it was very emotional um i had members of our lgbt community who um felt that it associate like they felt they felt the video was about them like that their families would judge them in the same way um and then i don't know if it was like 2006 2007 or something like that i can remember showing this video and it had no impact on the kids at all and they were like so what and it was like the kids turned to switch and it was yeah. like, oh, yeah, like we just made gay marriage legal in Massachusetts. We're in a super liberal state. The kids do not care about it. the kids were like, this movie's boring. And I was like, yep, thank God we're past this moment. This is not an ethical dilemma for the population of students I have in there. Um, I still think that there were really good ethical issues about like, you know, prenatal testing and other things like it opened up a whole suite of doors for me when I first started showing it. And then like. Four years later, it was over. Like it just, I one day I showed it and then it was over. So I can see how um, currency with students and how the students as sort of consumers and and people who you're you know guiding down a path, how they how things resonate or or I think maybe even a better way of saying it is your ability as a teacher to tell a narrative with certain resources. If even if you think it's a great resource, if you're not feeling like you're accessing it in such a way that they, they're buying into, right? Uh, there's so much good stuff out there that you're like, well, let's move on to the next thing and try something different. Um, and uh, I can I can very much respect that how that process works its way out. Yeah, that's so, great. So what about mission uh, Mar- uh, mission Mars here? Because they're like, this is a new one. This is like when I started this, you, you had three courses you developed, and then nope, two two winners. <laughs> so I I mean I can envision how I would throw this course together. But what is this? Is this a brand new one that you're throwing together? Um, we this is our second year teaching it. It's also a, a semester class um, at Masco. We started looking at the idea of pathways, right? To or at least an organization of the the course offerings for students and. You know, freshman year is, uh, at least at Masco, you know, it's a lot of core, right? They're taking a lot of their traditional courses and not a lot of elective options. I mean, they have their electives within the the art, the music programs. But if we were looking at sort of the core content areas, we just, they're taking math, science, social studies, you know, and English. So we toyed with, you know, what are kids interested in on this? So I did a, I had attended a, the question formulating technique or question formulation yep. technique. Um, is that out of Harvard? The, it is out of Cambridge. It's actually its own organization, I think. Oh, okay. But um, 
you know, I, we had toyed with it and we said, what are we going to do? And it was really tough because one thing I would say about co-teaching is it really should be a two people that actually want to go do this together, <laughs> right? To say you're co-teaching with, you know, X, Y, and Z may or may not work because there's a chemistry that happens in front of that room and both people have to be willing to at times compromise. It's, and that's not easy. Um, or be willing to back off something and say, okay, okay, yeah, we'll go with this today instead of fighting all the time, right? Because mm -hmm. when you make your own decisions in your head, that's it. You answer to you. You answer to nobody else. Um, so in that process within the last that couple of years where we were looking at pathways and organization, um, you know, we had this, we had a new STEM lab that was developed at Masco, a really large space, um, which would be used for classes that were in existence. So we had some courses that would be in there. But we said, what about the freshmen? Like, how do we keep them... Can we offer them something that will give them, I don't want to call it a break in their day, but it is kind of because it's, you know, it's more of a, it's a project-based learning class atmosphere. It's a math science combination. So I co-teach with a math teacher on this one. Um, it's ninth and 10th graders now, but it's still mostly ninth graders. Um, so we have like 60 kids signed up this year. We've only, this is our second year mm -hmm. and we do, you know, there's things we do within the engineering design process um, with focus on helping them also be able to reflect and learn how to communicate in various ways what's happening, not just build and then test, uh, but around Mars themes, right? So kids, I think people are interested in Mars. I think we're interested in space travel again. It's, I know it's not the 1960s, we've been to the moon, um, but there is still, I think that the unknown is very fascinating for humans and the vastness of space. So, and with National Geographic doing the, a Mars program with the Martian book, mm -hmm. there was this whole just sort of ripe sort of theme that seemed like, you know what, there easily could be a semester class on this, um, which another example of what could be a year long. Um, mm -hmm. There's way too many things to do because when you start doing building projects, it takes time. So, um, we, you know, last year it was interesting cause now I'm with a new person. I've known this, this guy for a few years, but now you're in that whole thing of like, it's like a marriage, right? It's <laughs> except for this case, there's no real dating that goes in. You just go there and you, you're looking at each other going, wow, we don't necessarily pause. Like when you start getting practice, you pause and the other one, you'll might look at the other person and say, Hey, do you have anything you want to add? Um, when you first start co-teaching, that stuff doesn't happen because you just sort of stay in your lane mm -hmm. and then there's silence. And so last year was getting those sorts of knowing how each of us works, knowing how, um, how to collaborate with one another and whatnot. Um, and he's a younger teacher, which I think is great. Um, math teachers don't often get the opportunity to play in the sandbox. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think he's really enjoyed that opportunity because yeah, we have to develop things and we work on things. We did some stuff last year. We were like, hmm, that wasn't great. You know, how do we make it so that, you know, either it doesn't work for that particular group of students or maybe it just needs to be revamped or trashed. Um, this year seems just much more comfortable, right? Because we've already put it under a belt once. Um, but the kids are excited. Um, and when, you, when we went into the introduction in the beginning, I said the kids are great. This group of kids that walked into the room this year I knew they would challenge me, which is what I would want from my kids. I don't want to be, I am not a person that, I don't just give out information. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, that learning environment is a give and take. 
Um, it was evident week one that these kids had come in with prior knowledge because of just interest. They're not learning it in class. It's, uh, you know, one kid was like, Miss Faye, are we going to watch uh, the National Geographic Mars show? And I was like, well, you know, we're going to, you know, we'll incorporate that at times. And mm-hmm. I was like, do you know the next season's coming out? And it was like, <laughs> you know, there, and I watch it with my dad. And I just thought, this is what, when edu- when kids are coming in excited, wow, it just, that was, that's what fulfills, I think, an educator's cup, right? Yeah. When yeah. they're coming in groaning and rah, rah, rah. And we know there's times they're going to do that. But to just have the kids that are like, hey, you know, they like coming in. They've developed relationships with us. Um, we're exploring whether it's the atmosphere of Mars to the surface of Mars. We do image analysis, things they would never do in other classes. Um, and another challenge in my book, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the interview, you can tell, like, it's all, often out of my content area, right? It's forcing me way beyond the biology world and the biotech world. Um, but, but I think that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've had a long dream of doing a course interdisciplinary course on, um, the innocence project. Hmm. Like that is the, the one that I would like to do because I think that there's so much forensic science that is pseudoscience and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of forensic science that is actual science and there's a lot of law that is good justice and there is a lot of law that is injustice. And yeah. I think that that could be, you know, again, with the right partner, the right population of students, the right setting. Um, but very much like you're saying, like, there's so many things that are very hard about developing interdisciplinary course. It's got to be the right time. You know, it's got to be the right ask at the right time. Um, yeah. And it's one of those things I came up with this idea a few years ago, but I've had so much on my plate in the building to begin with. Like, <laughs> like I even have the bandwidth to even like, like flush out the idea or like look for a partner or like look for any of that. And it's just one of those cases where, you know, there'll be a space where that's going to happen at some point in my career, maybe. Um, but uh, I, I get, to me, again, the concept of the interdisciplinary courses is something that uh, I think it's the way we, you learn. It's not actually like as a person, like not as a necessarily a student, like that's how you engage in the world. Like, why do you know about all of these other things that aren't like the thing that you specialized in? Well, it's because it touched upon this concept and this concept and this concept. And the next thing you know, you're like, <laughs> you're talking to somebody who knows you as one thing. And then all of a sudden you have all of this knowledge about this other thing. And they're like, why do you know that? And they're like, oh, because there's this thing I was passionate about and it opened up these other doors. And, you know, sometimes having an interdisciplinary course gives you the play, the playground, the, the sandbox to play around with ideas in a different way. And, um, you know, science is science, um, even if it's not the content area of it, you know, the habits of right. mind that we brought up earlier, you're still engaged in those, but, you know, just doing it in different ways. And that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of fun. So... So you alluded to a little bit your new STEM space. And um, and so I know that you're in a leadership position. So um, we in Massachusetts, like most places around the state, are in this tra- transition from sort of your traditional content-driven, you know, <clears throat> you called us old earlier. Um, I don't know why you would do that. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, when I started, you know, 23 years ago, you know, my expectation was that I had to get really good 
at being a stand and deliver teacher. And even yeah. when I started in AB, you know, um, you know, 19 years ago, my, my expectation was that I had to really get good at like lecturing. Like that was like, you know, how do you deliver content? Like content delivery early in my career was something I, I worried about and I thought about. And now it's just like, God, how do I not stand in front of the room and talk? Mm-hmm. Like that is like my number one way I ask myself, you know, I'll be talking to our, our mutual friend, Brian, and I'll be like saying, so I'm like, well, what are you going to do today? And he'll be like, oh, well, I'm going to talk about this and I'm going to introduce this and I'm going to talk about that. And I'm like, okay, that you just said the word talk like three times. Like <laughs> I'm not doing that. Uh, how do I get somebody to do th- things differently? Um, not to say that he is not a super engaging and activity-driven teacher, but um, for me, I've actually been consciously trying to reduce it. But how have you been, you know, helping um, your colleagues um, and people at Masco um, transition from that content-driven learning objectives to these new NGSS-like standards that we're we're looking at in Massachusetts? Ah. Uh. I, you know, we talked about patience earlier <laughs> and I think it's, it's really important. Um, I have, I think similar to you, there's all these things in my brain, things I want to do. Um, and I wish I could get from A to B in, in a millisecond. Um, we have a staff that's, uh, really talented. They've been there a long time. And I think Acton and Box, Acton Boxborough probably has a similar sort of people might stay for quite a while. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's reasons for that and good reasons for that. Um, when we make shifts like this, as far as how we want to approach education with our students, and I'll be on the record and say, I agree with many of them. Like, I, I think that um, how you get there is really hard, right? So your question is one I'm not going to be able to answer and say, <laughs> we're there because we're not there. Um, and it's going to take a lot of work to get us there and a lot of self-reflection to figure out how to trust and get sort of take those steps to having teams work together to develop. So this year um, in the leadership role, which I never thought I would go into, mm-hmm. um, we there are three other department chairs that came in the same year as I did, all from the district. So we've known each other. And we made a push for professional learning communities that would exist during the day for, our, for the teachers. Um, and we were successful. This is our first year. And that means at least this year we start our conversations and it gives us a place and a time where – um, we can start now just in the teaching world. It seems like we're just like, got to do this, got to do that. Check, 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 get that done to actually, this time is meant to be that reflective space. Um, will it be a perfect PLC this year? Absolutely not. But, um, the fact that it's their duty for the day, they don't have another duty, um, that the expectation is they, they do all meet. Um, I think this year they have to just get used to that idea and what that means in space and start working on what are their goals? What are some things they, they as a team would like to examine within their framework? Um, there's a lot of my fear also with PLCs is that you can create PLCs, but mm, there's not a lot of structure that people provide for what that means. And um, to me, I really believe they're teacher driven. Um, so even though I'm in a leadership role, my, my, I don't, do not see my job as one where I give them a task that day and say, here's your agenda today. Mm-hmm. I really want them to work where they start working with themselves. And there are protocols you can use. I didn't think it was appropriate right in the beginning to give protocols. That becomes very sort of administrative-like. Mm-hmm. So I'm giving, I think they're, each team, we did it by discipline, which not all schools do, right? Some do it cross-disciplinary, but our biology teachers are all together and our chemistry teachers are all together and physics and science nine. So I'm so excited that we were able to get that. And different groups of teachers are really happy. Some groups are really happy about that. And others are like, 
what is this? You know, mm -hmm. I'd rather have study hall. And we've had some good and hard conversations around that stuff. But I think that will help provide us at least one of the, it's not a solution to the time issue. I think the biggest issue for making any of these transitions is time. Mm -hmm. And I, I may be off the mark on there, but I, I tend to hear it, I think, in other groups that we both go to is, when are we going to do this? Like, if you want to start moving away from, you know, or, or continuing to build that student-centered classroom, you know, go back to John Dewey. None of this is new. <laughs> um, it's just repackaged a bit. But it is about having those students take command of their learning more. Um, because passive learning is easy for them, right? And you're in a district with strong students. You can give them a test any day. They'll study. They'll read a book. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we, we have similar, some similar demographics, which means then what are we giving them for tools that are going to help them? Not today, not necessarily tomorrow, but down the road even. Um, so I have lots of ideas about maybe how some of the things we can do. Um, our professional development in the district, they finally, we have a Vision 2025, it's called. You can find it on our website. Um, it was approved in the last three years, and it's really about looking at those components to that actually mirror things like the NGSS or the new state standards and how we get there. So that's really helpful because it gives me an interdisciplinary discussion. It gives me the right language for anybody that wants to ask me why would we do these things. Um, but we need professional development. And so we're working to try to maximize our time um, and have meaningful PD that's, yeah, sometimes it's them working within their group, but it's also maybe bringing people in that can help give us some experiences from external sources or having teachers in district that are experts really shine and provide opportunities for their peers and colleagues that allow for, for the growth. So uh, I don't know how, I feel like it's going to take a long time to get there, Aaron. Um, you know, because yeah. I look at it and I, in my head I'm going, oh, you know, I did the QFT stuff with them last year and I modeled it and we did it together. Um, we brought in some new teachers because of changes in, in sort of the department. People coming in from other districts are actually uh, a great feeder. Not to change, but maybe to change, right? Because they come in from other places where they're exposed to different things and mm -hmm. Um, they give us insight that we be, we become institutionalized, right? We've been someplace for 21 years. It is what we know and eat and breathe and sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, unless you're outside that world enough, that's all you see, you know? So sometimes the grass looks pretty, you know, you think, <laughs> you think it maybe is hard and I go, wow, it's pretty good. We're, yeah. we have great, like we've already talked about all these kind of cool classes that I, these are just two examples. There's many more outside of the science department. Yeah. So you know, how do I get, I think it's baby steps and helping people build more confidence around things and having some coaching, like <laughs> not evaluation. I yeah. don't think that's your answer to any of this, but feeling that it's okay to take risks and it's okay that something doesn't work perfectly because if you're comfortable with stand and deliver, and I think there's a lot of people that are, and I'm not criticizing it. It's, there's a time when you're in front of your classroom but when you try to shift so significantly, uh, it's scary and it's uncomfortable. And there's, I think you feel like you're not doing a good job probably sometimes. So you, to have a support network where the, where teams, small teams can help build mm -hmm. some of those changes. Um, I'm hoping will be part of the answer of helping them get there. Um, and bring, you know, bring along some of those that maybe are less, re, you know, less pliable. I know 
uh, Bill Daggett does work around sort of, we listened to him come to Maskinomit last year and he spoke to me because what he helped me identify was who am I? When you give me a new idea, where am I, right? Am I the person that goes, hey, that's super cool. I want to try that. Yeah, that's me. Like, mm -hmm. that's what I realized. Like, BioBuilder, for example, I loved it. Like, I go to these things and I go, that's really cool. Or I see certain applications. I don't, I don't tend to be going, um, I'm not doing that. I don't think that'll work. Like, that's not how my brain works. So there's three levels, right? I'm that person. There's the people that will watch for a bit and then follow along. And then there's people that just are going to be really grounded where they are. Those, they're not ready. They're not going to take those leaps. And I had to, as a leader, um, realize it really helped me look at individuals sort of as who they are in that process. So I can see in any, you know, when you're looking at the department, you can go, yeah, I know that that person's one of those people in a sense, right? Um, they might go out in front for a bit and try something. And there's going to be people that will come along behind them. So I'm hoping that I continue to build my leadership skills to identify strengths in people um, because I think it brings strength and capacity for the, the department and the district. But I'm only, this is only my third year in this position. And uh, I would say I'm still very, 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 very green. Yeah. Uh, but um, the, I think there's such great potential in what we can provide the students for opportunities as long as we are flexible and open with teachers to, to work on that. Yeah, and I think the, the word uh, trust comes up a lot because when you're with a group who you're asking to do something that's different, you're right, there are people who are like, yeah, whatever. I might might be one of those people who would be just like, <laughs> so two years ago, I, I pretty radically, or I guess it was three, three school years ago, I pretty a big push for myself to turn my class into a much more student-centered class. Like I really did, looked at every opportunity I could to just not lecture. Like I started all, trying all of these techniques just to not lecture. So where I had a lecture, I just said, all right, well, what are my learning objectives for that? How do I flip this over? What do I do? All right, we're gonna do this instead. So I flipped, I pretty much called them lecture flips. So I did in place of a lecture, I met those learning objectives another way. And I got a lot of pushback, particularly from my students. Like the, as you said, mm. the students, they wanted to, to be like lectured. Like, can you just put the PowerPoint yeah. slide ups and talk to us? Yeah. Um, and it was not that I am a ineffective lecturer. It's it's not that I'm a bad storyteller. Mm. I'm a relatively entertaining person. Um, I am very immature. I can talk at the level of a 15, 16 year old with the best of them. Um, so, and I, and I enjoy my students and enjoy that sort of back and forth. And it's not to say that I never, I mean, we have sort of student, we don't, we have teacher centered design classes. So there's a definitely a piece that goes in there, but I basically made a big push and said, you know, I'm going to try to avoid at all costs, make everything as much there. And I got a little pushback. And then the next summer um, we flipped our class. So I provided them those lectures. And so we just, made all the flip videos and I might have possibly okay I totally tricked the other three teachers I was teaching honors with into doing it because I just <laughs> I just made them for the first four units of the year and said well you're going to do this and then once the car like once you start a flip and you flip for the first three months there's no going back and right. and they they pushed back but to their to their absolute credit we brought in one new person in the district who had it in their skill set and was totally comfortable with it and the two mm. Um, old sticks in the mud, um, who I love dearly, who were like really out of the comfort zone on it. They both, because we've taught for so long together, they just trusted me and they're like, all right, we're going to figure this out. And I, I don't, you know, we're, we are very deliberate. We talk a lot. We knew each other very well and they weren't even a hundred percent on board. One of them was like 
I don't agree that this is necessarily the right way to go. But at the same time, the trust that we had established over the previous many years of working together was we can try this this year and then we can tinker. And I'd like to reflect that at the end of the year or possibly the next year. And um, and so like and I was open to say, I think that's like really bold of you to do. Like I, mm-hmm. I really respect I like I have thanked them. I was like, thank yeah. you for trying this. Like, I think this is really good. And so it needed both trust and respect to do that. Um, and then there was no time given. It was just the fact that I don't sleep and I spend way too much time working on curriculum. <laughs> and and that is the downside. And so where I have this like fountain of energy to dig deep oh. into the well to do it, I do think that there is people who push back about time and I don't think they're complaining. I think the demands on the teachers yeah. are just too deep. And so um, I love the idea that you sort of carved out the time within the existing day. Like you didn't ask them to do another thing. You asked them to do something else instead. Um, <laughs> I feel like every time we're asked to do something like a PLC and PLCs have flopped in our district. Like really they tried to roll mm-hmm. them out, but they tried to roll them out in a few different ways. And it's not to say that they're totally dead, but they never really have taken off the ground, but that's not because they were never carved out. And it mm-hmm. was, it was a cultural shift away from the way we've done things in the past and it wasn't met with, it wasn't approached in a way that recognized the degree of shift that it was. And I think that's something that you need to do. Like when you ask, make a big ask, you have to make an adjustment that is sort of commensurate with the ask. Like it has to be, you have to meet people maybe even a little further than halfway when you're mm-hmm. asking them to go out on a limb. Um, especially, you know, in, in situations where you're asking people to be vulnerable. Um, and PLCs are a very yeah. vulnerable experience and having worked at them in a couple of districts. Um, I remember going through that initial training and I had gone through the, Oh, I forget what it's called. There was, there's one that we went through, uh, critical friends groups. No, yes. I had done that many, many years ago in my previous school. And we went through, and I remember back in the training, the talking about the, the vulnerability. And then when I did e-mentoring, um, for years, we always talked about like, there's this level that you have to build up to in a relationship that you have to sort of almost get like a social relationship. And then you have like a sort of trusting exchange. And like, it's not until like the fourth or fifth level up the step, the steps that you get to collaborating. Like you have to build all of these relationships before you get to that. Like it's, you know, it starts with, you know, social and then like some sharing and then exchanging. I mean, it's like, you got to work till, and that takes time. And I think initiatives don't always build in the patience associated with that. So right. I think you talking about it the way you're talking about it is, is exactly right. Like let's take baby steps, let's evaluate, but also you have to have some throughput to say, all right, now that we've done this, what's the reasonable right. next ask? So, right. And that's kind of where we are. And, you know, within the process, I, I will also say that, you know, we set up all these PLCs. Great. Everybody supported it. Awesome. Um, and then, I had a moment where I went, I need a PLC, <laughs> right? I, why is it that I don't have a PLC, but the teachers are having these PLCs. So then I stimulated. So now we have actually a PLC, which is not, it, it's, it's for whatever, like tomorrow we really are trying to hammer out our professional development for December. Um, and it gives us an opportunity for the stakeholders in the, as far as the leaders of the departments to come together. And I felt that's a fair thing because we're taking a period out of our day that would be used for whatever to actually be productive and work on things. And, you know, we're in the same boat as the, as the teachers because we're kind of going, all right, what is it? Where are we at right now? What are the things on our plate? Um, and it's not meant to be a session where you just come together and, <laughs> and sort of complain about the day, right? 
it's to troubleshoot some things and support each other and collaborate and find connections, which will help us from the seven through 12, you know, range. Yeah. So I'm really happy. And I'm with the fact that I'm also in my peer group right now that I'm working with people that want to also work together because I think it will help model for other groups. You know, like it's not, it's not, you have to do this. We're all doing this. Mm. I, we're doing this and, and, and trickling it all the way through. Cause sometimes those levels of distinction can be really harsh, right? Yeah. <laughs> you're the administrator or you're going to the skull and bones meeting, um, <laughs> you know, which is funny. I can take all that. Um, but we needed our own place to talk about, whether it's articles or whatever it might be. So it's been good All right, so far. All right. I think we've just answered the next question I had, which is what are you looking forward to? Because I think we've pretty much, all, <laughs> I think we just nailed all of are that. Are you saying I talk too much? No, Aaron? I think that, I no, it's, uh, no, blame the designer. I designed these questions completely. They were uh, perfect. Yeah, uh, I, I, I designed them to, to bleed a little too much into each other, but that's fine. We can, we can get to the, the, what do you do when you're not teaching? I mean, I know that you like to stock Alia at uh, half marathons, <laughs> uh, but uh, what, when you're, uh, when you're not in the classroom, when you're not working on your teaching and that, well, like, what are, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do when you're outside of the classroom? Ooh, wow. Where do I start? I'm a bibliophile. I, my house is loaded with hundreds and hundreds of books. Um, it fills my cup. I think I read all kinds of different things, so I'm not stuck in any genre. Um, but I'm always learning. So I think, and I've had that habit since I was a kid. So that's been forever. Um, I love snowboarding. And after having a shoulder repair last year, I hope to get it back on the slopes this year and get outside to the fresh air. I love to travel. Um, I like to immerse myself in places, which I think still ties into learning, right? Because mm -hmm. it's always like, I'm not uncomfortable. I mean, there's always being uncomfortable is healthy, but I, you know, I've taken kids to the Galapagos, to Costa Rica, to Belize on my personal travels. You know, I go to Europe or two summers ago, I took my dad on one of his bucket list trips to Alaska um, and got to spend two weeks with my dad, which is priceless. Um, and I love food. <laughs> so I work out to eat is how I would say it. Um, I like food and, um, and I like good conversations and I've learned to try to try to, you can't be around positive people all the time. But like, for example, I think you're a relative, you're a relatively positive person <laughs> when I'm around you. Yeah. Um, but to see the, the good in most things. And um, I think that the world has just so much, I, I feel like I have such short time on the planet, just generally as a human, that there's just so much I want to do. And people say, well, you know, when are you going to retire? And I'm like, you know, I don't really know that answer because I don't look at anything. I love what I do. Mm -hmm. Like truly eat, breathe, sleep it. And I think when I stop doing this, it'll be kind of, I'm not sure I'll ever be out. Like <laughs> there might be something else I'm doing. Um, but then I go, but look at all the other things I want to do, you know? So yeah. I'm trying to balance the, the time to, like you said, you stay up late and you're, you're, you know, I wouldn't, I don't like the word workaholic. I would call it somebody that's in love with what they do because yeah. <laughs> um, I don't look at it as, I mean, I like it. Yeah. Like I like reading some of the, I like reading the articles. I like reading books around education, science, you name it. It's not a chore for me. Yeah. So. I, I find that I, I've been using the words that I just have bad boundaries 
I don't say That's no. To, good. I say I have no. I have bad things. Like I, I'm interested in a lot of different things, and I don't say no to a lot of things. So, um, yeah. Which. Again, you know, that's that's how opportunities come about, you know, as I as things pop up and people say that, like, how do you have time to do all these things? I was like, I don't really think about it. Just things happen. And um, and, you know, I'm pretty open to opportunities. But, um, yeah, you, I don't know. You were describing it was earlier, actually, when you were talking about lots of different things in there. And I had this flash of like you know, being in Spain and like doing things like when you're talking about the these different interdisciplinary classes and how, you know, we have different interests and different things. And it's like, I don't speak Spanish and like, I'm not an artist, but I can remember being at the Prado and I remember like, right. you know, and there's these experiences you have. And, and that's also like, that's also a bit of a well as well, um, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of like what sustains you in terms of going forward, um, right. having positive experiences then you move forward and you're like, I remember those positive experiences and that feeds your desire to then go out and do other things. I think, you know, reading fills that travel fills that um, food certainly does when you have a positive experience to reflect on. Um, it makes you sort of open to these new experiences and uh, that's pretty right. exciting. So I mean, travel food and reading together is like, <laughs> that's a dream come true. Yeah, I think that's called Aruba. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's what reminds me of Aruba vacation. Um, <laughs> All right. So uh, before we get to picks of the week, do you have any uh, questions for me? It's funny. I was trying to, I was thinking about, you know, it was hard. You're like when, when you're cold and you're sort of going, okay, I'm getting ready. I'm just thinking about doing this podcast. What would I ask Aaron? Um, and it's funny because I don't know very much about you now that I feel like I've given you so much about <laughs> me, right? Because there's a story to who we are and how we get here and what we do share, I think, is a common passion for what we do. Um, and I guess I would ask you if you you have a lot of ideas, um, what would be something that in the, so in the rest of your career, what would be something you would like to be able to do in education um, that would, I don't want to say fill your cup, but that you'd want to explore? That you haven't explored yet. Um, so for me, like it immediately makes me think of like, what am I? What are where where are my weaknesses? What are the things that like mm -hmm. that you know? I'm I'm pretty good at what I do. Um, I could very easily rest on a lot of laurels uh, without much things. But like, if I was just gonna say like, what do I not do as well as I wish I did? Um, and that's not to say that I don't. I'm I'm like like the worst in the world at it. But um, I think generally. Um, I wish that I was able to connect with more students to a level that they would have the trust to stop caring about like right answers. Um, mm. That I, I think I develop, there's one or two kids a year that you develop like just an enduring relationship. You know, like when we were out in Cambridge, um, I took a selfie outside of the location we were at because one of my former students is in was in Oxford watching the Red Sox game and he had messaged me earlier that day. Now this is Gosh. a student who graduated, you know, 6 years ago. Um he's always been in my life. He's going to continue to be. He's a great he's just a great guy. He was a great guy when he was 14 in my honors bio class. You know, he's now in his 20s. I have this great relationship. I got one or two of those a year. I think most of us mm -hmm. do. Um, and then I have a lot of really wonderful kids who you shepherd them through. You're mm. there. You're you're at the right depth for them. But then there's this whole group of students who um, it's just very superficial. And mm -hmm. like they're still doing school. 
and like, and I don't know if it's a class size thing or I don't know if it's a pace of the day thing, or I don't know if it's a skill set that I haven't developed yet thing. And I, I lean towards that last one that, um, you know, those students who you, you know, you have a positive rapport with, but at the end of the day, they still view school as being a thing that they are good at and they work through. And it's really all about right answers. And they smile and nod when you talk about growth and you smile and nod about that. But I would love it if like genuinely um, I could develop a class that was really all about growth mindset and really was Mm -hmm. a thing where they, those like preconceptions would eventually get broken down. Like I work really hard at breaking down preconceptions about evolution and about genetics and about biological concepts, but how good a job do I do at the learning, breaking down mm-hmm. preconceptions of learning? And, um, you know, I think of the honor students harder. They're younger. But even with my AP students, I th- still think they're students at the end of the year. They graduate. They go off to college. And, you know, they they still think of themselves as identified as a grade and not enough mm-hmm. as a person. And, um, and that's something I wish I got better at. And I really feel like I just don't emulate it. I must not emulate it enough in the classroom because uh, they can still have a really positive educational experience with me. And that never goes away. Um, right. And that also, that ultimately feels a little bit like a failing, like, yeah. like, you know, I, <laughs> I know for a fact that they're not going to remember most of the content from the year. They're going to remember the experience, but if the experience is ultimately tied to, this idea that they got to be good at school because they were in this great class and they were at this great school and they were good at school. And so they had these opportunities. No, they're a great learner. And that's the part that I would like to get. And I do feel like a lot of my students just never leave our building really grasping that. And I feel like I've gotten a lot better at that um, as I've grown as a learner and as grown as a teacher, but I still look at my students and still see too much signaling of that, smart is something you are not something that you do um and that learning is this journey um and i and i would i'm hoping that i can be part of the solution for for that being reflected by the school between now and the end of my career that's great i i totally understand that those sentiments yeah so and i wish you luck on that and i think that you know that's a that's a noble thing to to continue to work on yeah, I, I mean, it was funny you said that because today I said, we were talking about Einstein, right? Because we're doing that atom bomb. And the last tidbit I'll leave you with, I said, well, what makes a good student? Right? That was the question we asked the kids. And, you know, it was sort of a question I hadn't planned on asking them. But I was curious because there's lots of biographical information about Einstein. And, you know, he wasn't terrible, terrible, but he was a bit of a dreamer, which was actually to our benefit. Um, and the first student that responded gave the you know, he got good grades. And I went, uh, actually, <laughs> and you don't want to say no. And, but in that moment I went, I wish I could change you right now and know that I understand the grades are important, but yeah. you know, do you like learning? And then, you know, there's a kid, I look to the left and there's a kid over there that has already sort of left a mark, um, by showing some of his other sides that he, he just, he comes from a family, his siblings and he, it is really, they are interested in learning. Yeah. Um, and I think, I don't know if that's a parental, I think that has strong parental things. It just carries into the classroom. Right. Yeah. But it was a good discussion to have, um, because being a student is, you know, being a learner is very different than just walking through. So I wish you luck on that. Yeah. 
Uh, I think you can do it. I think you can do it. <laughs> well, and that's, I do a drop every once in a while when students, students have assumptions of me because, you know, I have, I'm like one of the lions of the building. But I was not a good, right. I was not a good high school student. Like I was good at school, but I was not, right. I was not a good student. Like I, I was good at checking marks enough in school so everyone would leave me alone. But I like, you know, my wife was a great student <laughs> and she, gotcha. uh, she, she would do all the homework. Her notebooks were really neat. <laughs> she did really well on stuff. Like I did enough. Like I was good enough at school to get to like the next flight. Like it was one of those things where I know the difference between somebody who is a hundred percent engaged and buys in and, and really invests in that. And I agree academic opportunities but I was not a great student by any stretch of the imagination in school so um I it's I think that's one of the reasons I sometimes connect with certain kids who are a little coaster sure. because I can sure. I call them out on their bs pretty easily yeah. <laughs> all right so we have come to picks of the episode um and Tammy you have this intriguing pick what is your pick of the episode wow i feel fortunate the district um has science magazine as a as a subscription which i love mm -hmm. i don't think enough of us probably take advantage of it but i immunotherapy is really interesting to me whether we're talking about cancer or peanut allergies so the cover of it was intriguing to begin with so the science magazine has a big old peanut on the front mm -hmm. in education we hear a lot about allergies and how to keep our students safe um and it's funny, it's an article I actually passed along to the AP biology teacher and others because I think that is also one of my things in my job I can do as a leader is if I come across something, I can send it. And sometimes if you read it, you read it. If you don't, you don't. Um, but I just feel that I think scientifically we've seen an upkick and an increase in allergies. And I just liked the overall article that then had more in-depth pieces to it, right? So if you mm -hmm. wanted to then get into the science on what's happening with some of these immunotherapy treatments, and it also talks about the anxiety of doing treatments like this. So when you're trying to give your sons or daughters uh, little small doses of something that has left them um, in anaphylaxis um, previously, it's really stressful to get people to trust um, that the medical approach may be a valid approach to helping them overcome something that limits them in various ways. So I liked the um, sort of review overall article, which I shared with you. Mm -hmm. And um, then having the opportunity to delve deeper into the scientific research that's um, being published on it. So nice. I thought I would share that with you. Yeah, and as a AAAS member, I can dive in a little deeper. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's a really, it's more than 3,000 people worldwide. Most of them of children have undergone peanut immunotherapy for peanut allergies with a goal of protecting them if they accidentally encounter the food. I mean, that's, uh, there's a talk about bioethics right there. Like, mm -hmm. do you expose your child to something like that? It's a great. I mean, it's like smallpox, yeah. right? I mean, if you go back in time, it's Jenner. like. <laughs> You have to make that decision, but I look at the school and we have like, you know, no eating in the classrooms, but the kids right outside the hallway can snack on whatever peanuts they want. Yeah. So I'm always like, it is a constant thing. And um, I just, I don't know. I, it struck me and it was, um, I do, I'm an emotional responder when I'm a reader probably. And I looked at it and I went, that looks really interesting. And um, I thought that would be the one I would share with you. Nice. All right. So I, um, I get these random messages from 
the likes of David Kanufke. And so my pick, uh. <laughs> my pick is actually something he shared with me last month, um, which I, as soon as he sent it to me, I was like, oh, totally. One of my picks of the episode, because um, I sometimes struggle to come up with them. Uh, but I thought it was super fascinating. It's called Cell Biology by the Numbers. Um, and when you click at it, it's basically a, uh, it's called the Path to Biological uh, Numeracy. And it sort of gives you sort of a breakdown of like, you know, why should you care about numbers and uh, how to make back of the envelope calculations and that sort of stuff. But then it dives into some interesting numbers that dive into biology, whether it's like the size and geometry of certain, you know, cells or other structures, uh, energies and forces, rates and durations, um, uh, and then some miscellaneous qualitative stuff and some concentrations, absolute numbers. There's all kinds of like sort of fascinating biological numbers that come up. Um, and I just, I, I, it's, it is definitely one of those, like you look at it and on the surface you're like, well, what is this? And if you click, I guarantee if you click on like five links, you're going to lose like a half an hour because it's super, <laughs> it is definitely one of those things where it's more and more deeply fascinating as you click on these things because it, it will start, I think if you're scientifically minded, generating some other questions and like, well, what about this? And you know, that's sort of where my mind went, but it, um, it, you know, I think a lot of the times about um, I stand at the board and I often will be doing math um, uh, up on the board because, you know, like I can because I went to a parochial elementary school and the nuns beat it into you. But um, the, the <laughs> not literally, but, you know, emotionally. Uh, so like to me, like just being able to do math, if I've got six groups on the top, I can do my means at the board without a calculator. Most of the time, our math just isn't that hard in AP biology. But um, but the students yeah. look at me in awe, like, where's your TI whatever? Like, how, where's your graphing calculator? It's like, we're just adding numbers up and dividing by six. Like, this really isn't that hard. Like, um, But I do think a number sense is really strong. And this is fun because I don't think uh, biology by the numbers is something that I normally think about. So it was a, a fascinating yeah. path to, to jump down and, and, uh, and look at. So... All right, I'll go down the rabbit hole. I can see it's up in my queue up at the top. I actually opened up the link. Yeah. I will now that you've you've sold me. I'll go take yeah. a peek at it. Yeah. So, um, well, not if you got a lot of work to do. So. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Tammy, thank you for joining me. Let me give quick my show credits. You can contribute to this and all my episodes by going to Patreon.com/lots. Patreons do get an early release. Uh, sometimes it's only a day or two. Sometimes I try to get it out closer to a week. But I do an early <laughs> release of the audio of my episodes on the Patreon. I also will post my show notes up uh, when I do release the episode. Music on this and every episode is by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians, former student of mine, as we talk about the, the ones who adopt us for, for life. Uh, you can get show notes also at my website, lifelessschool.org. I also post all my old episodes are up there as well. Uh, now we're into what, we I said, this is 59. Um, so we're nearly getting to 60. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. T Tammy, you have a school-based one at Masco Science. I've got both. You've got both. You can also follow Tammy on Twitter at Tammy underscore Fay 12. Um, and for the New England Patriots fans, <laughs> they can figure out why it's Tammy Fay 12. Uh, so again, thank you for joining me and I will uh, talk to everybody soon. Bye.